Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode. Today I am with David Mandel. He is an attorney in the Fort Lauderdale, Florida area and is a specialist in wealth management. I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today, David. Great. I'm really excited to be here. This was well recommended to me when I spoke at AOMS. They said, you got to get on Grant's podcast, so now I'm here. Yes, let's do it. Well, good. Um, I know you've recently kind of presented at Amos and some of the other oral surgery meetings. Can you talk a little bit about your most recent maybe discussion that you've had? Yeah, so the last one I did was a webinar and that we're recording this in the summer of 23. So this I did this just a couple months ago. I think it was May, might have been April. And that was on retirement planning. That was the whole focus. So we talked about, you know, it was pretty interesting. I did it and then one of my partners and I did kind of the lecture piece, which was, you know, all the things to be thinking about towards retirement, the importance of savings, whether to you an advisor or not, investing, you know, sort of highlights or pearls. And then my partner, Michael, he came on. We did a, Amos was very concerned that this would work because it was live technology, but we actually did a sample to clients on the software that we use. What if they, we were sitting next to them, showing them, okay, their plan is to retire at 60. They're saving X amount today. They probably will be in this state and this is what taxes are. And then we kind of adjusted it. Oh, what if they retire five years early? What if they sell the practice and get a lump sum and then their income goes down? And we did sort of a live financial model that it seemed like I think the audience really liked that. So that was the last one we did. Cool. Well, good. Can you give us maybe a little bit of information or background on how you got into what you're doing and then maybe we can jump into some content for residents and people going forward. Sure. Yeah. So I first, like a lot of people didn't really know exactly what I was going to do. So I went to law school. That seemed to be the thing to do at the time. Although, you know, my parents said I, I used to argue a lot and I was always a pretty good writer. So, and then halfway through that, I decided, you know what? I think I like business. So I applied, I was at UCLA to the business program and did a joint JD MBA. So you save an eight, a year, you do it in four years rather than five years. I also like being at UCLA, palm trees and sunshine. I was like, I'm not really for the real world yet. So, but I started my practice as an attorney in the area of asset protection and the reason I did that really was because of my father. So my father was a radiologist. And while I was doing that program, he was concerned, like probably a lot of your listeners are, that, you know, I'm doing the best for patients, but there's going to be bad outcomes. There's going to be things I don't anticipate. And I don't really want to risk everything I'm trying to build for my retirement, my family on, you know, 
having the right insurance or having the claim be within insurance or even being found liable when I filed the standard of care. I mean, he just didn't want to do that. So while I was in school, he found an attorney, became my mentor since passed away, one of my mentors. And he found a book, read a book, and we'll talk about my books, you know, our books, I should say, later in the podcast. But he found a book in the bookstore and he went to this attorney to help him structure personal assets. So if there ever was liability, he didn't feel like he was, you know, just sort of hanging in the wind. And I found that to be really interesting. I didn't know about that. That wasn't a course that they taught at law school, asset protection. It wasn't a specialty that the American Bar Association had recognized yet. It combined areas of estate planning and business planning and corporate and tax and even bankruptcy. So it was like really interesting. So I ended up working for that guy for a while. Then I'll speed it up, practicing law for 12 years exclusively in California and then in Manhattan, New York, with doctors all over the country as clients. And then after doing that for about 12 years, I said, you know, the problem with lawyers when it comes to physicians and a lot of clients, you work with them for maybe a month. Hey, I want to get my practice structure set up, or I'm thinking about selling the practice and I need a lawyer, or I want to get my wills and trust done because I got kids now. And then you really never talk to them again, right? So he wanted to use that MBA part of my training and build a wealth management firm where we actually had good long-term relationships. And that's what OJM Group. And so I now I still have my law practice. I don't do a lot of work. It's really mostly older clients, past clients that I'm maintaining. And almost all my time spent at OJM Group, which is a wealth management firm. So all the financial investing and things we'll talk about. But that's my background. So you know, I wore the lawyer hat full-time for about half my career. And now it's kind of part-time with most of my hat being on the wealth management side. Excellent. Well, good. You know, that's a good background. I also went to UCLA. So we got that connection there. That's right. Yeah. I forgot <laughs> to mention that. That's awesome. Yes. I loved it there. It's a great place. Yeah. I was just going to say most of our, well, not most, but maybe a big contingent of our, of my listeners are residents. Yeah. And so a lot of them are, you know, email texting me and other guests trying to get some ideas about this topic of how to kind of prepare financially for the future and protect themselves. So can you give some of your advice for residents who are kind of planning and beginning their career on how to build wealth and protect their assets? Yeah. So a couple of things, you know, people learn in medicine and, you know, I say this not only as I have 1500 doctors of clients of all types, you know, oral surgeon, dentist, you know, every type of specialty in medicine and my family being, my grandfather went to Harvard Dental School, my father a radiologist, I mentioned my brother's cardiologist. First things you learn is first do no harm, right? And I kind of changed that to, for financial, for residents and fellows and young docs to first protect what you have. Because most people think I'm broke. In fact, I'm worse than broke. I'm negative, right? You come out of school, broke is at least zero, 200,000 school debt with no assets, that's, you know, you'd love to be just broke, right? But there is another asset on the balance sheet. Yes, you have that liability, but you also have the ability to earn income and a license and a skill set that has, MBA speak, a net present value. Meaning if we total up the future cash flows, like we would do with a practice when you're going to sell the practice, those of you listening to that will know and learn about EBITDA and you probably had other people speak about that. But net present value basically means we're going to look at all the cash flows in the future, use some kind of discount rate back to the present, and that's the present value of that asset. And so the good news to all of you fellows and residents, as you finally go through the training, is you're a multimillionaire, okay? 
It's just that you haven't realized those cash flows yet. Okay. But that asset is there, right? So, I mean, I'm old, but I used to watch this sort of Seinfeld and there was a great episode where this guy's going to training and Elaine is helping him. And, you know, then he becomes the physician, gets his license. And she said, you know, they break up. And she said, you know, my dream was to marry a doctor. And he's like, well, my dream was to become a doctor and then break up whoever I was with and find someone better. There's, of course, some truth in that. That's why people laugh, right? But the point of that is that you have a significant asset. So first, protect it. What does that mean? Okay. Well, you know, as you come out, get disability insurance. And you probably had other people talk about that before. But it is really important. And, you know, finding a good advisor, we can talk about that in a second. That's the challenge in itself. But the reason why is we have 1,500 physician clients at OJM Group, and I've seen some docs become disabled. And the difference between what I do and what my brother does or what you folks do is I can pretty much do it if I'm in bed, meaning I'm doing, you know, Zoom calls with clients all day. I'm looking at documents. I'm helping clients build plans. COVID didn't affect us at all. We just went from doing, you know, more Zoom calls than ever before. We did that before. Whereas you need to see a patient, you know, at this point, right? AI 30 years from now, I don't know. But, you know, my father's a radiologist. That's one specialty where he's had technology in a way that he could work remote for a long time. But cardiology, certainly orals, any surgery, what you guys do, you got to be hands-on, right? So if you can't do that, if you physically can't get to the office and do that, your income source is going to be compromised. So first thing is disability insurance. And if you and some of you may have dependents, whether they're spouses or kids, even at uh, through training, get some life insurance. It's probably just term insurance, okay? But just protect what you're building. That's the first thing to do because nobody likes to pay disability premiums. I pay them every year. And it's, you know, I hope I never get disabled, but I know I need to have that. So that's lesson one. Good news is you've got asset. I don't know if it's bad news, but the challenging news is you want to protect that asset. Yeah, I like that. And I know just, I'm not no specialist in disability insurance, but I had kind of a wealth building financial planner help me to combine multiple plans and kind of maximize my future disability insurance. And it's nice to have somebody who's kind of familiar with stuff like that to be able to say, hey, here's the groups you should go with or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I think, and this leads a little in how to find the right advisor, but in the insurance area, and I'll kind of split it from insurance and investments. Now, you might be able to find the same firm. We do both of those things. But on insurance, the key thing is not to be work with what I call a captive, that's industry standard, or a quasi-captive, and that's my term that's in our books. Well, let me tell you what that means, okay? Captive insurance means you can only sell one product. So I don't care what you come to me and you want disability insurance and this person wants life insurance and you're this age and this income, this person's that age and income, I can only sell you one product. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. I wouldn't go to a doctor who only had one you know, pharmaceutical company that they work for because you know you're getting that recommendation for that company's product, even though it might not be the right one, right? That used to be a big problem. Now, the insurance companies have kind of recognized that. So what you have to look out for is what I call, what we call in the books, as we're helping clients make these decisions, a quasi-captive. And what that's a little more confusing because they say that they can use any insurance company's product, but in fact, the business model 
is my rent is paid by one company. My offices are in that company, even though I'm probably able to put on my business card something independent like Mandel Financial Group, but I may be in the middle of a mass mutual, let's say, office. And mass mutual pays all my overhead. Mass mutual covers my rent. Mass mutual pays for my assistant. Mass mutual gives me big bonuses if I do enough product with them. Mass mutual will take me on a trip if I exceed certain quotas, et cetera. So, Grant, if you sit down with me, what product do you think I'm going to recommend on your disability insurance, your life insurance? It's going to be a mass mutual product. And Mass Mutual is a great company. And my parents actually have long-term care with them. I used to play hoops with a bunch of those guys when I lived in New York. They have a big office on Fifth Avenue. But I know the business model, right? So yeah, when you're thinking about disability insurance docs out there, you really want to find a true independent company. Okay, yes, OJM is one, but it doesn't have to be us. Plenty of other firms like ours who don't have our overhead paid by any one insurance company, who don't have any financial incentive for one company versus another. And that's important, right? So I have life insurance through Pacific Life, Hen Mutual, my disability is through Principal. Whatever the right products my insurance guys told me I should get, it made sense. And it's not all one. I mentioned my parents have Mass Mutual. So even that company I was using an example doesn't mean that's a bad company or they don't have great products. I just want to work with someone that can look at all of them and then tell me, I think Mass Mutual is best for you because of X, Y, and Z. Does that make sense? That makes sense for sure. Well, so that's one piece of the puzzle is getting disability insurance, protecting your, you know, your body and your career. Should things happen? What other things can we do to protect our assets? So the other thing, I mean, I'll get to the protection for a second, but the other thing, it's so obvious, and everybody has probably said this on your program, it talks about financial issues, but start early. I mean, make compound interest work for you. I mean, you know, I have some great slides we do for Young Docs. I just did a talk for an orthopedic fellowship, and then a couple of weeks before that, I did the Cleveland Clinic down here in South Florida, the Plastic Fellows. And, you know, I just go into, you know, examples where, and this comes right out of our books, by the way. Okay, so and again, you're everybody listening. You can get all of our books for free. I'm going to tell you how to do that with an EOS code, so you don't have to take copious notes. This is all can come to you in a book and with graphics and and for free. But you know, there's a really good example of you know someone who starts at 25 at five thousand dollars a year and saves for just ten years, and then there's somebody at 35 who saves like I think it's fifteen thousand a year for 20 years. And at 65, the person who saved the five for a shorter period has more, right? And it's just because they started 10 years early, right? I mean, so the good thing that the people listening have, and even you compared to me have, is time, right? I'm 55, so I can't go back. I did, you know, do a decent job of saving early, but, you know, grad school and things like that. So make compound interest work for you. The other thing is understand the different taxation buckets. We have a pretty good slide and something, again, that our planners work with young docs is kind of like a priority bucket list. Meaning, if you, as you start to earn money and you have an extra dollar, should I, and this is the main question a lot of our young clients have is, should I pay down the student debt? Should I put it in a Roth? Should I put it in the 401k? Should I put it aside to buy the first home? And there's not one size fits all on that, right? Every doc, every client's going to have higher priorities of some can't, you know, have real stress about the debt. 
emotionally. And, you know, so that becomes, it's a higher priority item for them. Others say, hey, listen, it's a reasonable interest rate. It doesn't keep me up at night. I know I'm going to get it eventually. And maybe for them, putting in a different bucket. But there are some smart things to think about in terms of the taxation of that. And each bucket has its own sort of pros and cons. So be thoughtful about that. That would be another lesson. doesn't mean everybody has the same thing, but be thoughtful about as you start to save, even while maybe you're building up debt, if you're where, in what buckets, because it makes a difference over time. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I know a lot of our listeners have had that question, you know, because sometimes it's presented to us just as a numbers game. We're like, oh, well, your interest rate's this amount, but if you put it in the stock market or whatever, you know, you could get this amount back. And it's hard for us to be able to know really what is the best long-term play. And like you're saying, it probably varies for each person and what your values are. That's right. It does. I mean, one of the things I tell docs, you know, especially young docs, is one of the key things you can do financially, it seems kind of uh, hokey, but is know thyself. And that comes in a lot of ways. One, we're talking about here, how much does debt stress you out? That's okay. But also another you know, important factor of knowing yourself is when you start making money, and there will be that light at the end of the tunnel. And some of these people are sure listening because a bunch of people came to me in my talk, AOMNS, and they were not residents and fellows. They were docs in practice, and they were saying great things about this podcast. So I know you know, just to reiterate, that you have a lot of docs in practice listening to this too. And those folks, you know, you have to get to know yourself and know on the spectrum between do-it-yourself and delegator where you're going to be. And this probably also applies in your, you know, you probably have people on, you know, doing practice operations, but, you know, most docs are not going to schedule their own patients right? Because it's just not a good use of their time. Okay. That's just business 101. But, you know, I use my example. I can't talk too loud because I'm doing this at home, but you know, I live in a really nice neighborhood by the beach. The houses are very expensive. My neighbor every Sunday, okay, we're recording this on a Saturday, so I don't have to worry about it. But tomorrow I guarantee he will be out there with his earphones on and the blower and doing his own yard work. He can obviously afford to pay someone to do it, but he does it. Okay. It's the last thing I would ever do on a Sunday, okay? I'd much rather play golf, go to the beach, spend time with my family and dogs, watch football, whatever, okay? So I have somebody do that and I pay them to do it, okay? Because I'd rather do something else or frankly, record this podcast and maybe get a new client. I'd rather work in what my job is. I like what I do. Okay, so, you know, every person young and in practice is going to have to make that decision on the practice, but also personally. Are you going to go online and use LegalZoom and try to do your own will? Wouldn't recommend it. Are you going to prepare your own tax returns? Are you going to pay someone else to do it? Are you going to do the research like we're just talking about and find the disability policy and try to be an expert and do that? Are you going to manage your own assets or hire a professional to do part of it or some of it? Okay. All of these decisions And sometimes you and your spouse are going to disagree on that, right? But that's important to know. And there's no, again, there is no right answer. We work with a lot of clients who they really like investing, and we may manage a portion of their assets and have the sort of overall financial picture, but they're still doing their trading, they're doing crypto, they're doing meme stocks, they're doing part of their portfolio because they love it. And that's great, you know? 
So that's an important thing to know internally. And it may change over time. I mean, I've had an orthopedic surgeon who came to us and said, listen, I've been doing this my whole career. I'm five years out. I can't screw it up. I want you guys to take over. It's worth it for me to pay a fee now because the dollars are bigger and I'm close to the end. And I just, I'm stressed about doing it all myself. So that even changes over time, but that's an important factor too. Yeah. I like what you're saying with know thyself and kind of figure out what is important to you. And also what, you know, risk tolerance you have. I think for some people, it stresses them out to get into certain types of businesses and have more risk and other people just love that stuff. And that's kind of what makes them feel alive. But there's probably, I would think you'd recommend some type of balance where you're kind of designating this portion of my income maybe goes to somebody who can help watch over things in a low risk environment or or what are your thoughts on that? So, you know, I mean, certainly, and again, I'm not going to name them, but there are some popular websites for young docs that are, you know, certainly of the come at it from, you know, advisors are here to screw you and you should do it all yourself. And there's some truth in that. I mean, there are a lot, I mean, listen, I came as a lawyer, I'm in the financial world. There's a lot of unethical financial people. The business itself, and we can get into this a little bit, Wall Street is geared to make things confusing and to make you pay more in fees than you should. So there's a lot of truth there, okay? On the other hand, there is data out there. Now, someone might say, hey, that data comes from Vanguard, which a lot of do-it-yourselfers are, are bogleheads, and that's a trusted name. But there are a couple studies out there, and I refer to them in the PowerPoints, and again, they're in our books, that shows you know they look at, over time, investors without any financial professional help and those with them. And there's a delta there. There's you know an improvement of one, two, three percent per year using with advisors. So yes, there is fee drag. You know, we charge our clients if we're managing assets, you know, somewhere, you know, half a percent to one and a half percent, most of it under one. We're not the least expensive, obviously. We're not nowhere near the most expensive. You know, you get into private equity funds and Hedge funds, they're two and 20. I mean, they're taking a piece of the gain as well as a big fee. But obviously, very wealthy people are doing that because they're adding value on top of that. I mean, you wouldn't have billionaires hiring hedge funds unless they made the money. So the idea of hiring someone to help with investments is not like something that wealthy people don't do. But like you're saying, you know, I'm not the kind of person, my father used to do it as a physician, you know, rental real estate. It's just not something I want to get involved. I know it can be very successful. I know it can be very profitable, but I just never wanted to be a landlord and deal with that stuff. But we have plenty of clients at OJM Group who do that, and we let them do that. But I think, listen, I'm in the business of doing this. We have a transparent fee model. I think that's really important is if you're going to work with an advisor, and again, we have a whole tour of chapters. We can go more in depth on this too, Grant, depending on time, but how to choose an advisor, the business models. But the most important thing, and I want people to visualize this or listening, think of a, a simple XY axis and a line from the origin that just goes straight out up and to the right. All right. So it's straight out up and to the right, like a 45 degree angle. And what are the two things? One is transparency and one is trust. So if you're going to use with an advisor, the more transparent they are, the more you understand how they make money, then the more you can trust them. You know, I mean, that's just very simple, right? I mean, and the problem with the financial world, and I get the two do-it-yourselfer and the anti-advisor, you know, fire your advisor type thing, is underlying that I think it is assumption that you can't trust the advisor 
And I think the reason you can't is because they're not being transparent of how they make money. And we are at OJM Group. We have three divisions. We have the investment division. We charge assets under management fee. It's very clear. We make sure our clients understand it. If their assets go up, our fee goes up. Our assets go down, our fee goes down. We're aligned. On the insurances, we get commissions. That's dictated by the industry and the state law. There's nothing we can do about that, but we're independent of any company. And we explain every time we're helping clients use insurance, why it's better for them, not why it's better for us. And then we have a consulting side, which clients just pay us a flat fee to come through a diagnostic process. Hey, look at my investments. Look at my asset protection. Look at my tax. And they pay us a flat fee to do that. And so there is no confusion. This is what I'm going to pay you a thousand bucks to look at X and you're going to deliver Y for us. And I think that's what physicians should demand from their advisors is transparency because then they can trust them and then they can feel more comfortable about, hey, I'm going to give you a piece of my assets or be the quarterback of the whole thing. Because the data, and this is what I get back to over time, is that for the vast majority of people, having an advisor who you know talk them off the ledge when COVID hits in March of 2020, or when the next election happens, or when the next crisis happens. Not to mention, you know, a firm like ours gets a lot of investment opportunities, private debt, private equity, deals that aren't on the public markets, that if you're doing it on yourself, you're just not going to see those. No one's coming to an individual doc to say, because we manage 650 million, so we could put you know, 20 clients in and bring in $10 million. So they're going to come to us. And not only will we get deals that individual docs won't get, but we'll get better pricing on those deals. So, you know, there's benefits. Doesn't mean everybody should use an advisor. I'm not saying that. Okay. There are people who love to do it themselves, have the time, have the interest, have the makeup that know thyself, like we were saying. But for the vast majority of people, it does make sense because you know, higher best use, practically, you'd be better off seeing a couple more patients and doing what you're trained to do than, you know, try to be like researching asset protection rules and seeing how to do it for yourself, right? I mean, it's just not a good use of your time. You'd be better off seeing your patients getting paid well to do that and then paying someone like me to do it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I think what you're saying is pretty accurate with my experience. I think there's a lot of at least in our profession, in the medical field, dental field, a lot of distrust of financial advisors, you know, a lot of stories from our parents who were healthcare providers that how they got ripped off. And it's just like it can kind of self-perpetuate and self-feed on itself. But in my experience is there's just so much information. It's really helpful to have a, a good experienced person who, you know, is transparent and charges a fair fee and all that stuff is very helpful. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons we do this. And we've been writing books for, and you and I were talking before we started recording about your interest in in books. And, you know, it's certainly a lot easier now than it was. I wrote the first book in 1998, 25 years ago, The Doctor's Asset Protection Guide. And it was a hard copy that like my mother and five doctors read. And that was it, you know, but now we've got, you know, 20,000 books out there from books in the bookstores that are for the general public to ones that are physician focused. We have two that, again, your your listeners can get for free. One is called Wealth Management Made Simple. That starts literally the first chapter is a glossary of what is a stock? What is a bond? What is a hedge fund? You know, what is fiduciary? Like just definitions, you know, because I know my brother, terrific cardiologist coming out of training. He didn't know any of this stuff. He was a delegator from day one. He's never read the Wall Street Journal. You know, this is not of interest to him. 
Now a little bit more of it. So he got sort of into crypto and stuff like that. But just coming out, wasn't interested in any of that stuff. So this that book, Wealth Management Made Simple, goes from that to what kind of advisors are there? So there's banks and brokerage houses, there's insurance agents, there's fee-based financial planners, there are what we are, registered investment advisor, there's robo or automatic online investing options. And we go through all that, pros and cons, costs and benefits. So that book is really good for, I think, anyone just interested in investing and financial planning. And then we have the book, Well Planning for the Modern Physician, which has a section on for young docs. We wrote it with a young doc, a millennial orthopedic surgeon, Sanjeev Bhatia. So that section's there. And then we have a section on asset protection, which is all about protecting assets from potential liability. We have a section on tax reduction, reducing taxes, obviously. We have a section on investing, specifically for docs. We have a section on estate planning. So that is broader. And the wealth management simple is more about investing in wealth planning, but it really starts from you know, sort of what is a stock. And I bring that up because trying to find an advisor, how do you find one? Certainly you can ask your buddies, that works. But I think one of the benefits of today versus 20, 30 years ago, even before COVID, I've seen it, is people are comfortable doing this on Zoom. You know, we have docs in all 50 states. I have docs in Alaska, Hawaii, everywhere as clients. And we used to fly around a lot. And now people are like, please don't fly and meet me. I don't want to go to dinner. I don't want to leave my room. You know, I want to come home and do the call with my wife or with my husband on Zoom. It's more efficient for us. We got kids in the background. It's easier. We don't have to go do anything. And so what that means on the other side is you don't have to just find an advisor in your backyard, right? You can use the best, okay? Or the best fit, I should say. There's lots of best, you know, but best fit. So, and then the other thing is, I think, again, certainly it's work for us, but expertise, niche expertise, find people who work with people like you, who understand the challenges that you've got, who can say, yeah, we've got 100 people just like you. And these are the things, this is the range. They're not you. So again, know thyself. You know, it's not cookie cutter, but at least we've been there before. And, you know, maybe some of the people listening will get some of these books and read it and say, hey, I want to talk to you guys. And great. And if not, they educate you. So when you sit down with an advisor, that's not us, you're more educated, you're asking the right questions, you know where you want to go. Got it. Yeah, that was one of my questions was how to pick a financial advisor. You mentioned those various types of financial planners and advisors. How do you know what type of you know advisor yours is? Just ask them. Hey guys, real quick, KLS Martin is offering a summer sale special that includes 35% off instruments and a BNR special that includes two free hand pieces with the purchase of a console. This is an amazing offer and it's limited to one console promotion per customer and is only valid until July 31st, 2023. So the BNR Chiro Pro L allows for both implantology and surgical applications with up to 80,000 RPMs, which I love. I use it on the 80,000 RPM setting every time I'm doing thermolar extractions and have no issues with power or comfort or control. I just love how they feel in my hand when I'm using them, and I just um, can't say enough about this system. So please use the promo code capital EOSS, lowercase U-M-M-E-R, 2023 to take advantage of this offer. Enjoy. Honestly, it's a great question, and it gets into what we were talking about, why there's so much distrust 
of the financial, like if I go to a board certified oral surgeon, I know what that is. I may not know exactly what procedures they do or what I need, but at least I have an idea. If I go to an estate planning attorney, I know what they do. You know, wills, trusts, I may not know all the kinds of trusts and all the specifics, but if I sit down with a financial advisor, I have no idea what their background is. And that's on purpose, right? So this gets into why there is some truth and there should be some distrust of the financial world because a financial advisor, I mean, you could get a securities license and not even have a college degree and be licensed to do that, right? You could have a JD MBA from UCLA like me, and it's the same term, financial advisor, right? You could have a certified financial planner who has that certificate, right? Which isn't an academic degree, but it's you know a significant process or training. The bottom line is, and we talk about this in the book, financial advisor really means nothing. Okay. That's the problem. So, and you know, there are different ways to get there. I mean, certainly there are great advisors whose background is a CPA who came from a law background like me, who are CFPs, like some of the folks in our firm who have an MBA in finance. It kind of depends on who they are. So that's why to me, title is not so important, but look at their practice, talk to clients, what's their expertise, what kind of content are they creating, what kind of, do they have references, obviously client references that are similar to you, but to figure out what kind of person they are, yeah, you got to ask. And in fact, we have in the book, The Wealth Management Made Simple, we have five, first a set of five, and then another set of, I think, six questions to ask, right? And the first one is, are you a fiduciary? And you shouldn't be afraid to ask that question. You know, how do you make money? All the ways. Okay. How does your firm make money? Because it could be there's other, you know, again, it gets back into the thing I was talking about with the being captive. You know, if you work again, Bob, who runs one of our investment advisors, he spent eight years at Morgan Stanley. We have clients who come from us from Morgan Stanley. And for the first time, they might have been in Morgan Stanley 20 years, Grant, but for the first time, he can take their statement and tell them exactly how much they're paying in fees. They have no idea because there's not just fees to the advisors, depending on the proprietary Morgan Stanley funds. The Morgan Stanley's, the firm itself is getting a piece of that, right? Because they're it's a proprietary product. And so, you know, he's getting under the hood and for the first time they can understand what they're paying. So, you know, I know really smart, excellent physicians who don't really know, and they haven't asked these questions, you know, maybe they're afraid to ask him. And if they didn't ask him in the first meeting, then it's like, God, I've been this guy three years. Now I'm going to ask him how he makes money, you know? And so being armed with some of those questions from our book from the get-go, I think would be really good for your young docs. Yeah, I like that a lot. Real quick, can you explain the definition of a fiduciary for our listeners? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So again, coming from the law world, this is something that I learned coming into the finance world, right? Fiduciary essentially means, and I knew this all the way back from law school, it means you have to put the other person's best interests first. Now, what does that mean? Okay. That could be in a trust. If I'm a trustee of a family trust or any trust, I have fiduciary duty to the beneficiaries. I got to follow the trust document and do what's best for the beneficiaries according to the trust, or I can get sued. Okay, this is why people don't like to be trustees, right? So you have a fiduciary duty to your patients. You have to do what's best. And if not, you can get sued, right? We have professional liability. With my law hat on, right? When I'm a lawyer for my clients, I have a fiduciary duty. So people make fun of lawyers. I could tell you 10 lawyer jokes right now. Everybody likes to make fun of lawyers, but lawyers have a fiduciary duty to their clients and that's well-established. In the financial world though, 
there are two sets of rules. And there's a whole host of firms out there. In fact, most of Wall Street is changing slowly, but most large Wall Street firms are not fiduciaries. Okay. Insurance agents are not fiduciaries in general. Again, I'm saying in general. Okay. And they're under a suitability standard. Okay. So I'm just going to use a medical example, right? Let's just say you come to me and there are five medicines I could treat you with. Okay. And they all, you know, do a decent job. Okay. Maybe some might, one might be a little bit better for, you know, patients like you and one might be a little bit worse, but they all are aimed at the same, you know, whatever inflammation. Okay. But in the suitability world, okay, let's just say I get paid on one versus the others. In the suitability world, I can recommend that product to you, even though I get paid double and I've met the standard of care. And I cannot be sued. Why? Because it's suitable for you. If I make more money, good for me. In the fiduciary world, I have to find the one that's best for you. So if it, there's, they all do the same thing, but one, it looks like the studies show this is a little bit better, a little less side effects. I got to choose that one for you. Hmm. Okay. And in a fiduciary model like OJM Group, we're charging you a fee so we don't make any more money on the products. So like using the investment analogy, if we think, okay, in your model, we want, you know, 30% in large cap US, okay? We're getting our, just call it 1%, might be less, our 1% fee on the portfolio. So our choice of what to put in that 30%, we want to choose the cheapest one for you because it gives you the greatest chance of growing your assets, which is better for us because our fee goes up and we don't have liability then, Right. So yeah, we could choose an active fund where maybe we get a commission, but we don't do that because we're fiduciaries and that's not our business model. Our business model charge a fee and then almost all of our choices that we think are pretty, there's a lot of, well, use what's called an ETF, which is much cheaper than a mutual fund. So you come to a firm like ours, which is a fiduciary, you're going to pay a fee overall to manage it, but then our choices were totally aligned. Best product we think for the client, cheapest fee structure, because one, we're aligned. Our fee goes up if your assets go up. So we don't, we want as little fee drag as possible. And two, we have liability if we don't choose that. With a non-fiduciary, the suitability standard advisor, okay, it's completely opposite. As long as I find that large cap fund that's a large cap fund, I can choose the one that pays me the largest commission and I have no liability. Got it. Okay. So it's important. Yeah. And, you know, and the people who aren't fiduciaries are not going to make it that clear that they're not. Mm-hmm. It's not going, not going to give you a business card and say, oh, I'm not a fiduciary. <laughs> right. You're going to have to tease that out of them, right? Yep. So it's important. It's important to know. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. Maybe in a little bit different direction, but related to financial type stuff. I know myself, a lot of my friends and the medical providers just love to read the books of Robert Kiyosaki. And, you know, he's well known for kind of being, I guess you could say, anti-401k type stuff, because I feel like his philosophy is that as you're building wealth, you know, you should be earning more and more money each year. And so the concept of, oh, well, I'm, you know, doing a 401k so that when I retire, my income just drops off, then I'm in a lower tax bracket and it's beneficial, right, to pull that money out then. But he's saying you should be building wealth to the point that you're earning the most amount of money the older you are. And so that doesn't make sense to set yourself up for 
that type of, you know, earning. What are your thoughts on that concept? So there's some things, you know, I may disagree with that book on, but the concept that you're talking about here, which is really what we call, and it's a big part of what I do my talk. In fact, I in my AMS uh, live talk a couple of years ago and the webinar, I brought this up, which is the concept of tax diversification. And it is true that for most of our physician clients, I totally agree with him on this, that they are not going to really think about retirement until their assets are going to spin off enough income that they're not taking a huge jump, maybe any jump in lifestyle. Right. So I don't see physicians go from, you know, hey, I'm living on 20,000, 30,000 a month. And then, oh, I'm calling it quits and they're going as five, 7,000 a month. It's just not happening. Right. So they're not moving much. And I talk about this a lot in tax bracket change. I totally agree with that. Okay. Most clients, most oral surgeons, I think that listening to this are going to be in the top tax brackets, maybe not the very top, you know, 37 now, but they're going to be in the 30s. I don't see a lot of people coming out and then dropping into the teens and certainly not the teens and even the 20s. So I agree with that. So the idea, and I talk about you know funding, you get a deduction today for your 401k, you get tax-free growth, which is valuable, but then you're going to pay ordinary income taxes on the way out. Okay. We don't know what taxes are going to be in the future. Okay. So I use myself as an example. And all my talks or when I'm talking to clients, I say, I'll tell you what I do. Because it's exactly if I was sitting down with an oral surgeon to get some kind of procedure, I say, what would you do if it were you or me? That's the ultimate question, right? You have all the knowledge, you're there, you or me, what would you do? So what do I do? So I funded a 401k significantly during my loss, my attorney years and even to OJM. But for the last 10 years, I've been funding a non-qualified plan that funds into a cash value life insurance a lot more. Why? Because, and doing backdoor Roth, because I want some tax-free assets coming out in retirement. And both of those can come out tax-free. So when we tell clients the concept of tax diversification, one bucket is your 401k bucket or whatever, profit sharing plan. You get a deduction going in, but it's going to come out of ordinary income. Okay. I totally agree. If a client comes to me and that's their only retirement bucket, we got a problem. We got to diversify because I don't know what ordinary income rates are going to be, but I know they're going to be higher than capital gains rates. And I don't want to be at the mercy of all my assets coming out ordinary income. So then I want assets that are capital gains. So that's basically any asset you're going to own for more than a year. Okay. Real estate is a little bit of a challenge or people love it during the earning years. When you sell an asset that's been depreciated, then you're going to spin off that gets recaptured. And so you pay ordinary income on that. So we just have to watch that. But it doesn't mean real estate's not good, but any other asset, whether it's stocks and bonds or your practice stock, do you sell your practice or artwork or crypto or closely held business interests? Those are all going to spin off capital gains. And again, this comes right from our book. We have the charts of the long term, you know, uh, since the inception, ordinary income, which has been around for, you know, income taxes for over 100 years, capital gains goes back to World War II, so about 80 years. And there's always been a big spread there, meaning ordinary income has always been much higher than capital gains. So if we can get a bunch of assets for a client that are going to spin off capital gains, we're better off, right? Because retirement's going to be a long time. People don't retire at 65 and die at 70, right? You might be in retirement looking to live off your assets for 20, 30 years. So having diversification there is important. And then having a tax-free bucket as well. So that's Roth IRAs that could be tax-free munis, or those you know those haven't uh, returned well. 
over time. I use cash value life insurance. There's a lot of, you know, back and forth. Uh, people have different opinions on that, but I think done properly, it can be a real benefit. And I can talk about that more if you want, but those are assets that come out tax-free. And so I'm positioned now where I've got significant assets in all three buckets. And when eventually I'm not working anymore and I want to maintain my lifestyle, I can choose to pull assets from the right bucket, right? Income tax rates have down for a couple of years, you know, administration, they cut, uh, right? I can pull more out of my qualified plan, my 401k. Maybe tax rates go really high. I'm going to pull them out of my tax-free bucket. If cap gains rates are lower or, you know, maintain low compared to income, I can pull more out of there. It puts our clients, including myself, in a position of strength for the long term. So in that sense, his concept of, hey, you're going to be in a high tax bracket in retirement, the idea of relying just on a 401k, which is going to be ordinary income, I totally agree that that is not ideal. Got it. I like that. So you're saying diversify, have your money in various forms that you could pull out depending on your status, depending on the market, the tax level, all that stuff. Exactly right. It's, you know, tax diversification. For the real nerds out there who watched old time Star Trek, they used to have 3D chess that Spock would play, right? So chess is one dimensional and diversification is important, like large cap, small cap, international stock versus bond, hedge fund, all that kind of stuff. That's sort of investment. That's the first tier of diversification. We're taking at another level to say, not only that, now let's see what buckets your assets are growing in. And let's make sure that those are tax diversified as well. And it takes a long-term perspective, but you know, even your older docs, you know, you start today, you say, hey, where am I today? And how can I reposition so that for my retirement, I'm in a good position. Okay. Can you talk just a little bit about what you're mentioning here with tax-free life insurance? Is this just like a fund you put into and it's designated as life insurance and at a certain age you can pull it out or how does that work? Yeah. So this is a topic that if people are interested in, I would definitely get our books because I'm going to give you a high level and we've got some chapters on what it is, who it makes sense for, who it doesn't, some examples, real case studies of docs who've done it and use this structure properly. And then those who have used it improperly or inefficiently, and it hasn't worked out for them. And this is a place where you're going to, on the blog, see a lot of opinions both ways. But again, I came to this as a lawyer and said, okay, this is an asset class, and I'm going to call it cash value life insurance, but you could also call it permanent life insurance. One mistake that a lot of physicians will call this whole thing whole life, okay? But whole life insurance is one subset of cash value life insurance, okay? So cash value life insurance basically is two kinds of life insurance. There's term insurance. Term insurance, there's no investment portion. It's just a cost, right? It's like auto insurance. You pay it, you get into an accident, it pays. You don't get an accident, it doesn't pay. Term insurance, you buy it, you die, it pays your heirs. You don't die, it goes to the next year, you pay again. And I have term insurance. I have term insurance for my family. I have term insurance at their business. So I'm not against term insurance. Term insurance is the most effective, most, and I talked about this and really in the beginning, we talked about protecting assets. If you're young and you just want death benefit, or even if you're old and you just want death benefit, term insurance is cheap, okay? Term insurance, about 1% or 2% of term insurance ever gets paid out. That's why insurance companies make money, right? Because most people don't die young. You're protecting yourself in case the worst happens, but you know, you'd know you much rather have the insurance company make money on you than be dead. 
we can't be angry that only 1% uh, pay out, right? We want fewer early deaths, not more. Okay, permanent insurance or cash value insurance has a death benefit, but it also has a cash portion, okay? Meaning there's an investment piece of it. Now, what is invested in? That depends on the product. Whole life basically goes into the investments of the insurance company in general, and you get a dividend. You can think of it like a bond return. It's like 4%, 5%, 6%. It's in that area. It's not a great, quote unquote, investment, but it's pretty safe, right? Just like bonds are. You know, you use a AAA rated insurance company, like I picked on Mass Mutual before, so I'll pump them up. They're AAA rated, They've been around 150 years. They have, you know, $100 billion in assets. They can only invest in certain things, like two or 4% of their investments are in the stock market. I mean, these companies are going to be around a long time, right? So, you get five, six percent. Now, under the tax code going all the way back to the beginning of the US tax system, that growth is tax-free. So now all of a sudden that four or five percent, that's not so bad. Okay, it's tax-free. All right. In a lot of states, it's totally asset protected, meaning protected from creditors, like where I live in Florida, in New York, where I used to live, et cetera. Okay, many of the states exempted. But you have other investment options. So again, I always tell clients what I do. The policies that I'm funding, Grant are what are called equity index policies. They're tied to the S&P 500 or another equity index if I want, could be Eurostock, could be Dow. I've chosen the S&P. And there's a floor and a cap. So there's a floor of, I think on my policy, 0% and a cap of around 10, okay? So what does that mean? That means if I put a thousand bucks in this policy and a hundred goes to the death benefit to pay that, you know, some, let's just call it a $50,000 death benefit for my family. The after expenses, let's say there's $800 left. That 800 out of that thousand I put in is going into the S&P 500 with a floor and a cap. If the S&P does between zero and 10, that's what my return will be for the year. And if the S&P does better than 10, like it's doing this year, I'll cap out at 10. But if the S&P does negative, like it did last year, I get no loss of principal, zero return. Okay. So I've had this kind of policy for over 15 years. Its internal rate of return at this point is, you know, nine point something percent because there's been a lot of years where I've hit the cap and not that many that I've hit below that. It might be eight to nine percent, but it's in that ballpark. It's done well. I think the cap is actually higher than 10. That's why the the average is eight or nine. It might be 11 or 12. But the point of all that is I'm getting eight, nine percent tax free. Okay. And I can pull that money out tax free. Okay. Let me explain that. So there's two ways to do that. First, let's just say, okay, I'm going to give you an example of my own policy. Let's just say, to make numbers easy, there's $500,000 of cash in there right now. And that's not that far off. I put a lot in over the years month on a monthly basis. Let's say I put 300,000 in over the years and 200,000 is growth. Okay. I can always pull the 300,000 out. That's nothing magical there, right? Because if I bought a stock for 300, put it all on Amazon, and now it's a million, I can always pull the 300,000 out, meaning if when I sell it, I'm going to get a piece of basis. It's called basis. What you put in, you're allowed to get out tax-free, okay? Okay. So if I wanted 100,000 out of my policy today, I can just take it out, okay? But the real magic to these kind of policies is 
borrowing against the death benefit. So let's just say out of that 500, I want 400 out. I see a nice piece of real estate I want to buy. I want to buy into a practice. I want to you know, buy a second home, whatever it is. I want to take that 400,000 out. Well, that 300,000 comes against basis. What about that other 100,000? How does that come out tax-free? Well, the way it comes out is, let's assume now that my policy has a $2 million death benefit. So there's 500,000 investments growing. But if I pass away, my family gets 2 million, okay? Now, I want to take that extra 100,000. So I want to get 400 out of that 500 cash. I take the 400. Now what the insurance company says is, okay, we're going to loan you that 100,000. And if you never pay it back, we're just going to pay your heirs 1.9 million, not 2 million. So I'm using that death benefit, that 100,000 during my life. Very valuable, okay? Because it's not taxed. Now it's a loan against the death benefit. You say, okay, well, I got to pay that back. You don't have to, okay? It just means the death benefit will be lower. But if you do, you can. So let me just give you a real example. My wife and I, we redid our house, our kitchen, okay? And we took out a HELOC to do it. Because when we did this a couple of years ago, my HELOC was 3%. So it's like, why not? I'm not going to sell any assets. I don't want to use cash that I would be investing where my firm is getting me 7 8%, right? Where I can borrow on the HELOC to do the thing at 3%. And some of that is a tax deduction. So it's net two and a half. Right. So if I and I figure, hey, it's also it's upping the value of the home anyway. So why not borrow against the home? You know, my cost is two and a half. And, you know, whatever I spent on the kitchen is probably adding to the value of the home. That was my thinking. All right. So over the last year, over the last 14 months, that 3% has gone to seven and a half. Right. We've all seen this. Right. As they keep raising rates to deal with inflation. So now that seven and a half, you know, I paid off a bunch of it anyway, but I still have, you know, over a hundred thousand of HELOC loan at seven and a half percent. Well, you know what I just did last month? I pulled a hundred thousand dollars out of my life policy, which comes out at 25 basis points loan. Okay. So 0.25% is my loan rate for my policy. Okay. And I paid off that seven and a half percent HELOC. Sort of makes a lot of sense, right? Now, am I going to pay that hundred thousand back to the policy? I don't know yet. I might. I might, you know, just say, okay, I was paying on the HELOC a little bit every month, a thousand a month, right? Two thousand a month because it had an interest rate. Maybe I'll just put that two grand a month to the policy and eventually build it back up. Or I maybe I won't. Maybe I'll find something better to do with that, and I just my heirs will get a hundred thousand less on that policy. Okay. That's how cash value life insurance works. Now, are there a lot of problems the way you can doing it wrong? Yes. Are some of these websites that hate financial advisors, they hate cash value insurance even more? Do they have some points to make? Yes. Okay. These are long-term policies. A lot of the costs are front-loaded. If I did one of these policies and wanted to take the cash out or surrender it in the first 10 years, it would look terrible. Okay. Some agents, this gets back to using the right agent, will sell you a policy that makes them a bigger commission. And so you don't have as much cash growing for you. Some policies, even from good companies, I mentioned that 0.25% interest rate, which obviously is great. There are some policies that have a variable interest rate that might be seven or 8% now. So all of these key, there's seven or eight, and we talk about it in the book, you know, key factors, okay? 
You want to use an insurance company that is a mutual company. Why? Because it's owned by the policy owners. So people start living longer. There's less cost of insurance. There's more profit, right? Because people live longer, less deaths. Then that gets shared with all the policy owners because we're all owners. You know, if I'm a mutual company, like my policies through Penn Mutual or Pacific Life was a mutual company, if there's a for-profit company, that profit's going to Wall Street, whoever the shareholders are. And you as a policy owner, you might have higher and higher expenses. So there's lots of different factors to think about. And this is why it is there are key success factors. So, you know, the books, I'll let them go into more depth, but done right, you can do what I just did, which is be your own bank to some degree, grow the assets, have them be grow tax-free, tie it to the S&P where it's a, a good return and do it right. But there's a lot of ways to do it wrong and people get burned and then the asset gets a bad uh, reputation. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's super helpful to kind of get a, a basic understanding of that and realize that there are certain tools that can help you shift your money around so that you can maximize the amount you actually get to take and minimize the amount you have to pay in fees and taxes and all this stuff. So an interest, you know? Interest, yeah, exactly. Well, good. That's a good summary of kind of some of the things that we should be aware of. I appreciate you doing that. I know I don't want to get too much into this so that our listeners don't start getting that glazed over look in their yeah. eye, you know, like what's going on. But no, that all of this is super important stuff. And I think like you're saying, the younger we can understand the tools available to us and get good people on our side, just the more powerful it will be for us when we're getting older. Absolutely. So, you know, as we wrap up, what I want to do is a couple things. One, I mentioned how OJM works with clients. We certainly manage assets. We certainly do insurances, life, disability, long-term care, all of that. We're independent. We have the consulting side. So for those docs who are in practice who say, hey, listen, I'd love to someone to take a look at my practice or my personal planning. And you know, I'd like to start with a flat fee diagnostic. I think a lot of docs get that versus, hey, I'm going to go most financial advisors. Again, you don't even know who, what they're doing, what their background is. They sit down with you, one meeting, two meetings. Can I manage your money? Can I sell you something? We have a way to work with us that isn't any of that. It's a process. And you pay us a flat fee and we figure out how many things you want and what that fee is. It's usually somewhere between one and $10,000. So $10,000 would be looking at everything at the practice and everything personally. Most of our clients are much less than that. And you come through a process. And it's a diagnostic process. Hundreds and hundreds of docs have come through. And then you see, hey, are there some, do you have good ideas? Do I want to work with this firm long term? You know, I, you, I joke, say, you have to date us before marrying us. Whereas with most financial advisors, one or two dates, and then it's like, okay, can I manage your money, right? And we give our clients a way to get knowledge and diagnostics beyond that. But I think for everybody here, at least getting our books, we have a free newsletter that comes out every month. We do a lot of videos. Just get more educated. If you're listening to this, you care about this stuff, you want to be educated. That's why you're listening to this podcast. And so, you know, we're going to, in the show notes, you certainly can go to ojmbookstore.com if you're listening, which is ojm as in Mary bookstore.com, and then use the code EOS23, EOS23, and check out, and you can get all of our books for free. So you can ignore the pricing. Once you get to check out, you'll get it for free. We'll put that in the show notes and a link and all that so you guys can get there. But everything I talked about today, is in our book somewhere, said better and in better depth. 
The one thing I'll ask of some of you young docs, okay, and I want to make is, we'll put this in the show notes too, is at OJM Roof, I've wanted to work with young physicians, but most of them, they can't pay the fee. They don't have the assets for us to manage. And so one of the things we want to roll out in the next year is a subscription service for young docs. That's a little less touch, but certainly a much lower fee. And what I'm trying to get from young physicians in training, in fellowship, in residency, in medical school, dental school, is to find out what's important to you. And so we have a survey, an online survey that's all of two minutes, anonymous. Just click into it. Tell me, you know, of these 10 services, which ones do you think are valuable? Of these 10 financial tools, which ones do you think are valuable? It'd be helpful for us as we try to build out a subscription model for young docs to get some feedback. So I'll make sure Grant gets that too. And if you'd give me the time of two minutes to give me your feedback anonymously, that'd be great because we want to build something that's for young docs that they can afford, that can teach them this stuff, that can get some interaction with professionals, but they don't have to pay the full freight of you know, private wealth management like we do with our normal clients. So that's my one ask for the audience, if people can do that, would love it. Perfect. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that resource and being able to provide you know free information via your books to our listeners that's terrific absolutely happy to do it excellent well yeah i'll put all this information in the show notes and if anyone has any questions they can contact me or we'll put your email there too if you're okay and then we can yes. uh, yeah get get people i'd love to use your services too so i'll contact you as well but i appreciate your help and kind of running through some of this stuff Absolutely. And we've got a podcast also called Wealth Planning for the Modern Physician Podcast. Just look me up or Wealth Planning for the Modern Physician. And your favorite podcast host, Grant's going to come on our podcast. So you can listen to him. We're going to talk to him about his career, how he got this podcast started, all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of docs who are going to be interested in that. So that's coming up. We'll have him on my podcast too. So I'm excited about that. Same here. All right, David. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time this morning and let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you, Grant. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or, you know, learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.